Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip Ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Go to Esther chapter 8. So last week we ended with uh, the king, he was, had a lot of wrath towards Haman, and then something began in that time where Haman and Mordecai kind of started to switch places. So Mordecai was condemned to death uh, by Haman, and, then, and, and Haman had made gallows for him, and then it switched. The king uh, condemned Haman to death and hung Haman on the gallows. And so that same type of thing will continue on here as we finish the book. And uh, we'll kind of get into uh, what goes on in these chapters. And the first time I read through it, it didn't strike me as like that crazy or anything. But as we'll look through it, we'll see that there was basically a legalized war where both sides had legal permission from the king to kill the other side. <laughs> So it's like within this one nation, uh, the Persians have permission to kill the Jews, and the Jews have permission to defend themselves and kill uh, anyone else who tries to attack them. And so it's this really weird, awkward, like legalized war within one country where they both have permission. And then the king just like kind of watches it all go on, and I don't know, it's really, really interesting. So we'll look at it in a second here. Just a reminder of where we're at in the context of everything. We're uh, coming near to the end of what's recorded in the Old Testament, Uh, so in this time of restoration. So in the book of Esther, the events there take place about, uh, I think it's 50 years after Ezra chapter, do we stop in six? Ezra six, and then 15 years later is when Ezra seven happens, when we'll study that next week. So we're studying that time right now in between Ezra uh, 6 and Ezra 7. Um, And then after these books, it's pretty much silent for 400 years um, until Christ comes. Uh, So we'll zip through this for now. And here's what we just talked about. So uh, the, the ones who have already gone back in... Uh, to Jerusalem in Ezra 1 through 6, they are still in the Persian Empire. And so everything we're reading about here, they would have been receiving information about via letter. And even them, as they sat there and had these edicts come in from the king that they could be killed on uh, the 13th of Adair, um, they would be defenseless. They didn't have the permission of the king to fight back at that point. And they have enemies all around them, people that hated the Jews. And uh, so the news that comes in our text would have been very welcome. So next week in November, we'll be back in Ezra. So we're going to jump in in chapter 8. And the I, as we've worked through the book, I've tried to decide in my mind kind of what the theme overall is of the book. And the author purposefully leaves out any mention of God, um, any prayers by uh, the individuals in the book, um, 
you know, there's kind of all the inferences of this is clearly, you know, God's at work behind the scenes. Um, and I think the, the people within the book, and as we'll see in this text, they really trust in uh, themselves. We see that a lot in Haman, that he was very much confident in his own plan. And then they trust in other people. So even as we come to the end of the book, Mordecai is exalted. And I think the readers left thinking like, you know, shouldn't Mordecai be giving God the glory? And so it's kind of a book where God is left out of the picture and people are trusting in themselves or in people, in, in men and women to save them. And that's who gets the glory for all of this. There's no uh, moment where they're like, this is what God did. God gets the glory for what happened here. So uh, kind of the, the end point of today will be don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in you know, a person. Trust in God. Hope in God. Because he's the one who, when you cast the lot, Purim, uh, Purim, how we're going to say that, uh, he's the one that controls how the lot falls. When everything seems random around you, like we talked about last week, where the king can't sleep, uh, they randomly read the account of four years earlier when Mordecai saved the king. Um, you know, all these random things, uh, they're not random. It's God at work. God uh, orchestrating his plan for his glory. And so when we hope in ourselves or we hope in individuals, uh, that's a false hope. It's a misplaced hope. And it will be disappointed because the only one that can truly be hoped in that will never fail is God. So to illustrate this, I used to play basketball and I had the opportunity several times to take the final shot to try and win the game. So I don't know if any of you have ever had that moment in a sport or anything like that, but it's kind of this moment where you could like earn the glory and I could never make the shot. <laughs> I probably missed like six buzzer beaters in high school. And every time I'm like, ah, I wanted that to go in so bad. So I disappointed a lot of people. But you think about some players uh, in like the NBA or in you know, college or whatever it might be, that they just seem to always make that clutch shot. You know? uh, but even them, they, they miss. They don't always win the game. Uh, you know, even the best teams lost lots of games, and uh, you know, it's easy uh, from my perspective uh, with sports and stuff like that to hope in a team like, oh man, I hope they win tomorrow, and I, oh, I hope they make this play to, to get ahead and win, and all these things, and then there's, you know, you're constantly feeling that disappointment from misplaced hope, and that's really what our lives are like when we hope in people, you know, when we hope in uh, a friend, when we hope in our child to succeed where we failed, where we hope in a spouse, where we hope in a pastor, where we hope in you know, a political figure, whoever, they're always going to disappoint us because they're not perfect. And I think that's somewhat the point of Esther, that even though things work out and Mordecai is exalted to second in command, uh, there's still this feeling of like, Mordecai didn't do any of that. <laughs> From our perspective, uh, you know, it was never pointed out that God did it, but we, just from what we've seen, it was random things that brought Mordecai and the people of Israel to this place, 
and it was God doing it, and they just don't give him the glory. So as we read through this, uh, just pay attention to uh, that same kind of behind-the-scenes work of what God is doing, and even as uh, you know, Esther and Mordecai and the king work to try and save the people of Israel, it's really God behind the scenes that does the work. So, uh, again, last week we saw it kind of flip, and what's going to happen in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, is that not only was Haman killed, but then his household is given over to Esther. So let's look at uh, those first couple verses there. So your blanks are, God's people begin to triumph over the house of their enemy. So notice as we read, especially through these first six verses um, in Esther, it's going to be pointed out that Haman is the enemy of the Jews and how he's evil and how this evil plan is coming against uh, the Jewish people. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. So there's this really quick, bizarre exchange where Haman's been killed, and the king took the signet ring from him, and Esther's like, Mordecai is my, he's technically her cousin, but he raised her. Um, and so we often refer to him as her uncle, because he's older. But she tells how she's related to Mordecai, and the king's like, uh, he's just rewarded Mordecai, remembering that he had saved his life. And so he's like, yeah, Mordecai, why don't you take Haman's spot? And so he gives, the king gives uh, Mordecai his signet ring, which is a huge deal. And then he gives Esther the house of Haman, which means that she would have gained all of his possessions, his estate, uh, his money, all that stuff was just given to Esther. And then she gives it to Mordecai. So all of a sudden, Mordecai goes from being, you know, like a gate watchman to elevated to the second in the kingdom uh, to Haman's spot, who's just been put to death. And so they've really just switched places. <laughs> just bang. In the matter of like an hour, uh, God has flipped them around uh, in order to save his people. And it's crazy to think about because when we think back to Daniel, he was made third in the kingdom in Babylon and then in uh, Persia. So Mordecai is actually in a position higher than what Daniel experienced um, in his time in, um, under both of those governments. So he's really high in the kingdom uh, right away there. So this is the beginning of uh, what's going to happen in uh, this next uh, couple chapters here. So next we're going to see that God delivers his people, Israel, from their evil enemies. So again, the text doesn't point out that God is the one doing it, but we uh, know that he is, and the author is purposefully alluding to that in the randomness of all these events, um, especially how we read it last week. So if you recall from last week, uh, Esther was just explaining that Haman's the guy. He's the guy trying to kill my people. And then remember, the king got mad. He had his wrath, and he stormed out. And so... 
Esther didn't really get to finish asking to save her people. So these events kind of happen as like a blurp, and then it's like back to business where Esther goes back to saying, and we still need to save my people. <laughs> so that's where we pick up in verse 3 is kind of Esther coming back to the king for that request of how to save her people. And this is a wild thing where even though Haman's dead, like he's defeated and put down, he's kind of reaching out from the grave with this edict that he got passed, still, like the Jews are still condemned to death by the king. And so Esther has to try and sort this out. Uh, So we're going to see, first off, that Esther begs the king to stop the evil that is coming to her people. So verse 3, Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite, and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? So you can see in there, in, in what she's saying, that this is not guaranteed what she's asking. She's being persuasive. She's begging. She's saying, if you don't do something, they will die. And she's repetitious in there. And she appeals uh, to the king's heart because she's a part of this too. She's Jewish as well. And so it's still an attack um, on her life as well. And so uh, she begs for his help. And there's kind of this moment where it's like, will he follow through? Will he help? And he kind of starts out in a strange way. Uh, He responds to her, and he doesn't say like, yeah, I'll help right away. He starts by listing some of the ways he's already begun to help them. And so I think as you're reading it, uh, for the first time, you're wondering, is he going to say like, haven't I done enough? Uh, But he does follow through uh, to help. So here we're going to see the king grants permission for the Jews to fight back against their enemies. So kind of feel that tension as we read through this, that it's, we're wondering if the king will help or not. So in verse 7, Then, the king, then king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So this is about two and a half months after the first decree had been written by Haman. And so remember when Haman released that one, remember it talked about how the people in the city were confused. Uh, they got this, uh, this uh, decree sent to them, and the whole town, the whole city was in confusion. So as we read through the next part, uh, consider the difference that this decree brings to the people as we read through it. And so they're going to write a new decree because they can't revoke old decrees. It would 
uh, make the king look bad, like he changed his mind or he wasn't right the first time. So the Persians didn't do that. It was kind of a lack of humility issue, I think. And so instead, they're going to put out another decree. So instead of just saying, you don't have permission to kill the Jews, we're going to say, yeah, you can still attack them, but they're allowed to fight back now. So it's kind of a bizarre thing. Like, we're going to give you know, anyone permission to kill you and take your stuff. You're not allowed to fight back. And now it's like, oh, yeah, now you can fight back. It's just like a really strange situation. And it shows... Uh, that the king is not a very good king. Uh, so let's start reading um, in verse 9, and we'll see. Uh, yeah, we'll start reading there. i got to follow my outline here. I'll get lost. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, and the 23rd day. And it was written according all, to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. Um, so I, I said that other part, a little early of the, the contents and the response of the letter. But here they are, they, they write the letter and Mordecai uh, drafts it and they send it out. And uh, it's different from, so before when Haman sent out the horses, it, it kind of said a similar thing, but now it adds the part about how they're riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. So I think now that Mordecai's in control and he knows that time is an issue, uh, he's telling the Jews, what's happening here is he's saying, prepare for war, is basically what he's sending out. So imagine a war telegram. You'd want that to go fast. You know, you'd want to send your best men, your best horses. And he's basically telling them, prepare to, you know, to fight for your lives. And so he's going to encourage them to gather together and get ready. They have about eight months until the day that people are allowed to kill them on. And so... He's gonna, uh, we're going to read the contents of the letter here in verse 11. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people, so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened, and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel. So uh, this is the decree to counteract what Haman had told them to do. And so it's basically the same uh, reflecting the contents of the earlier message. So you might be wondering why does it uh, also add that they can kill children and women and to plunder their possessions? Uh, that seems a little harsh. Uh, but that's probably what was included in the edict uh, giving others permission to attack uh, the Jews. And the you can read this in a way that says, 
you know, usually you wouldn't fight women and children, but you can read it in a way that says if they attack you, then you're allowed to fight back. So it's, it's almost giving like the, uh, what is it called, like the, the principles of war or the, you know, what they're allowed to do on this day of war, basically, um, legally. So now it's this really weird context where both sides have permission to kill the other ones. So I don't know. I don't know if there's ever been anything else like that in history where it's like a legalized war where both sides have permission to kill the other ones um, in the same country like that. So it's, it's kind of bizarre. And so as we read through uh, this next section, we'll see that God allows his people to rejoice over their enemies. So here we're going to see their response uh, to this letter coming, and then as they prepare for this day of war, and then also what happens uh, when those things begin. So in verse 15 of chapter 8, it says, So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white. So blue and white were the Persian royalty colors. So it's just a noting that he's, uh, you know, a top politician now, a top uh, man in the government, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had, uh, had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. So just a couple things to note as we read through that. Remember what happened when the first decree came. How did Mordecai walk through that? You guys remember what, what that was like for him when the decree was sent out that all of his people would be killed? It says that they wailed loudly and bitterly. Yes. And uh, what did Mordecai do? And he tear his clothes and yep. dust and ashes or whatever. Yep. Yeah, he was like mourning in the city square. And so what a difference now. Now he's dressed in like the royal garb and they're, they're celebrating uh, the joy of being able to defend themselves. And then uh, there's that really interesting part at the end of verse 17. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Uh, we're not quite sure you know, what that totally means, but when you think back to what Haman's wife said, do you guys remember uh, when she kind of prophesied about what was going to happen uh, to Haman back in chapter 6? Verse 13, she said, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. So within Persia, there's like this uh, great fear of the Jewish people. And now they have permission to defend themselves, and people are really scared now. And so I don't know if it's like a Persian superstition almost, where... Uh, I think from most of their perspective, you know, they don't believe in the God of Israel. Um, and so I wonder if there's like some sort of superstition of like, hey, if we don't join with them, we're going to die too like Haman. Uh, 
So that's what we're hoping is, is not going on with the people of Israel. We hope that they're actually trusting in God. You know, but, it, yeah? Just at one point, I'm thinking that uh, God Jehovah <coughs> helped the Israelites in previous years and centuries. Right. All those stories came through. Right. And they're like, here we I'm go sure, again. I'm sure these people heard these kind of stories. Yeah, exactly. Right. And when you think about, you know, those other deliverances, like the Exodus, um, this is another really big one. Like the Exodus was huge. And I think we tend to read through this pretty quick, but from this war, the Jews kill 75,000 people. Uh, it's it's a, in two days. And so it's a quite a significant uh, battle that goes on here that they previously didn't have permission to fight back in. So this is a, a big deal and a big deliverance from God. Uh, before we start chapter 9, does anyone have any questions or thoughts with that? Yeah, Sheila. I just thought I'd mention um, the other day, I don't, or I think it was on YouTube or something, was Ben Shapiro talking, mm -hmm. and he mentioned the name Haman. Yep. And so I thought, I know who that is. That's awesome. You know, but it's funny that in today's day, other than like at church, somebody else is talking about someone in the Bible. Yep. I just thought. No, that's really so interesting. it made you think that he was a significant person in the history for him to bring him up. Right. Yeah, I think Haman would have been, uh, in, in a modern-day Jewish mind, uh, Haman's similar to, like, Hitler. Like, they would view them as that, you know, someone who tried to wipe out their entire people. So you, you can, you know, we have a connotation of what Hitler is like in our mind, and that's who Haman is, essentially. Um, yeah? people are complaining because mm -hmm. they're getting bombed and their hospitals are going away right. because they need the oil. They said they need the, is that right? Or, or gas. I don't know, Nancy. Gas. Mm -hmm. Something to do with that they need it now to, to run the hospitals and Right. And it's it's crazy that like history keeps repeating itself. Yeah, well they, they started it. Right. And uh not. Yeah. And going back to what Haman's wife said in chapter six, uh from our perspective we know about the Abrahamic promise that God promised that those who curse you I will curse. And I think that's what we see repeated through history is God has chosen on his own to bless the children of Israel. And, you know, these people are afraid. <laughs> because when God curses somebody, they get hung in the gallows. And uh, so it's, I think, even though God's name isn't mentioned, the fear of what God does for his people is upon the people of Susa and the Persian Empire um, in this text. Uh, so yeah, as we get into 
uh, chapter 9, it jumps ahead eight months. So between 8 and 9 is the time between when the second edict went out and uh, the 13th day of Adar. Is that how you say that? Adar? Works for me. <laughs> <laughs> so the time is here. Uh, this one day where both sides within one kingdom have permission to kill each other. And we're talking about thousands of enemies coming up against the Israelites. And we're not told how many Jewish people there are that are assembled, but I think the, the sense of the text is that it's surprising that the Jews win. <laughs> and uh, within the city of Susa, or Shushan, whatever uh, your Bible might say, there's only, I think only 500 and all die. But within the whole Persian Empire, 75,000 enemies of Israel are killed. Uh, so it's quite a significant day of battle, two days of battle. So we're going to start in uh, verse 1 of chapter 9 here. Now in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. So I don't know if that's meant to be humorous there, but... It's like, <laughs> this was all the king and his lack of keeping an eye on Haman. You know, Haman instigated all this, and the king was somewhat ignorant of what was going on, but he signed off on it. So here's this confusing day where, within a year, the king has made contradicting edicts. So on, that, on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, and that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could withstand them, because fear of them fell upon all people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame sped, spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. So this day comes, and uh, the Jews have prepared. I think they've probably been getting ready for this day for eight months. And here it comes, and they're attacked. And instead of being destroyed by their enemies, the opposite occurred. I love how it says that. It's like, and they were supposed to be overpowered, but the opposite occurred. And it's just a funny way uh, that that's written. And so they overpower the ones who hate them. And uh, it says they lay hands on those who sought their harm. That means they killed them. So uh, the Jews are not the instigators of this war, but even as they're attacked, they're not just going to wait for everyone to come. So they're you know, counterattacking, you know, it's, it's a full-blown war. Um, and then fear is upon them because the people are afraid of the Jewish uh, people. And then all the governors and people in power help the Jews because they're afraid of Mordecai. So remember, Mordecai is second in the kingdom now. He's a man to be feared. He has the power to, you know, execute, and he has the king's favor. So think back to Daniel when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. 
He was thrown in the lion's den because the king's governors hated Daniel and they hated the favor that he was receiving. So they did a similar thing where they tried to trick the king into having Daniel killed by anyone uh, you know, that prayed to anyone else would be thrown in the lion's den. And so they got their wish. Daniel went into the lion's den. And remember, the king then couldn't stop it either. He had to throw him in, even though he loved Daniel. And Daniel lived through it. And Daniel came out, and they were all good buddies again, and happily ever after. No, when Daniel came out, the king threw in all the ones who had uh, planned this and their families. He threw them all into the lion's den because he was so mad that they had tricked him into defeating uh, or putting Daniel in the lion's den. So I think there might be a similar fear here that Mordecai is in the king's favor. And if we work against Morde what Mordecai is doing, then the king is going to be like, you know, you're next. <laughs> We're going to pull a Haman on you. So uh, the Jews have help and uh, they stand up on that day and uh, counterattack. So there's kind of a few points here. So the Jewish people are uh, exalted. So they were a people condemned to death. And then as we saw at the end of chapter 8, they were rejoicing and preparing for battle. And then at the beginning of chapter 9, they overpowered uh, those who hated them. So usually when I have thought about the book of Esther, just in passing, you only think of the main characters. And you only think of Haman as being the bad guy. But there's thousands of people, at least, maybe hundreds of thousands, within the kingdom of Persia that hate the Jews. And so this uh, plan that Haman put into place wouldn't have worked unless there were people already out there that hated the Jews. So there's already this uh, you know, conflict going on, and now they just have permission uh, to kill the Jews. And so... Here we are, and the Jews stand up for themselves. Uh, in the, so when Haman gave the edict to uh, anyone in the Persian Empire to attack the Jews, they were allowed to kill them and take their stuff, to plunder them. And that was also given as permission to the Jews that they could defend themselves and plunder those who attacked them. But as we'll see here, as they defend themselves, uh, the Jewish people slaughter their enemies, but do not plunder. So there's some sort of, uh, I don't know, if moral or ethical dilemma that goes on in the people of Israel here, where they're saying, we're not in this to kill people. We're in this to defend ourselves and to keep ourselves going. Um, we were attacked we didn't attack them to plunder them. We were attacked to be plundered, and we're just defending ourselves. So several times throughout this text, it's going to talk about how, and they did not plunder them. And, you know, this can make us a little squeamish because, you know, you think about like crusades and things like that where in the name of God, people have been slaughtered. And we have to remember that Israel is not the church. We're not Israel. We're not on a mission to make Christian nations. We're on a mission to spread the gospel to the nations. So God can do whatever he wants in the time period that he's working. And with us, we're a peaceful people that brings good news 
to our enemies. And with Israel, they were a light to the nations, but God also used them to uh, you know, take out enemies of his own and to defend themselves. So if, we, if we're careful to not read ourselves into the text wrongly, then this is okay. <laughs> so we should not go to war in the name of Jesus. Um, that is not the job of the church. So let's start reading in verse 5. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. All right, I'm going to slaughter these names. Also, Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Ariditha, Parmashta, Arisai, Eridai, and Vajesatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamathadetha, the enemy of the Jews. They killed, but they did not lay hand a hand on the plunder. So, it's no surprise that within the capital city here that Haman's sons come out to fight against the Jewish people and Mordecai, who's leading them, because they're the reason their dad's dead. And uh, part of the reason that these sons can't be plundered is because all their stuff's already been given to Esther, who gave it to Mordecai. So they don't have anything to be plundered anyways. But uh, So yeah, they are uh, killed in battle here. And then in verse 11, On that day the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be granted you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. So uh, the king is really seeking to help the Jews and to please Esther here. And so he's asking for a report from her of how many have been killed and then also uh, what else she needs. So here is Esther's further request in verse 13. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So this is on the 13th day of Adar, and she's asking for permission to fight on the 14th day uh, because I think they're probably still being attacked. And so she's looking for royal permission to continue defending the Jews. She also asked for permission to hang up the ten sons on the gallows. So that could be, uh, you know, kind of a bad thing. But I think what she's seeking to do here is to use that as a deterrent and saying, we don't want to kill anyone else. We, we've had to kill a lot because you keep attacking us and it's hopeless. Stop attacking the Jewish people or you're going to die. So I think that's a good way to read this. Uh, so in verse 14, So the king commanded this to be done, and the decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. So they're already dead. They just put them up. Um, so in verse 15, And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the fourteenth day of the month of Adair, 
and killed 300 men at Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, um, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of Adar, and on the 14th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. So again, we have to read this in the context of a war. So this is, you know, they've won the war, and so they're celebrating at the end of it. Most of our account is zoomed in on the capital city. So we only get the details of what happened in the capital, but this war is going on across the known world as Persia governed so much uh, of the known world at that time. I don't have a map uh, up today, but uh, yeah, the, the Jews defend themselves and they kill 75,000 of their enemies. So we're not given the number of Jewish uh, fatalities. So we're assuming some died. Um, I don't know if it would have been a similar number or it seems like they just overpowered their enemies uh, is the way the text describes it. And the opposite happened of what the other side was expecting. So maybe there wasn't that many uh, Jewish deaths in the war. We don't know. Uh, Esther 9, we'll read 18 and 19. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. So... They make this holiday to celebrate their deliverance. Um, so you think about them being delivered from Egypt. They celebrate that day uh, on Passover, that God delivered them out of Egypt. And so this is a similar thing. Uh, when we think back to that time, God was specifically leading Moses and told them to remember that day and to celebrate a specific way. And so that doesn't happen here. They kind of set it up themselves and uh, make their own holiday, as we'll read about in a second. Um, so in this next section, we'll see that they, they make it, uh, yeah, something that they'll celebrate every year, about a month before they celebrate Passover. So in 20 through 32, we'll read about how Esther sends out decrees that they'll celebrate the holiday of Purim. Um, and she sent it out through a couple letters. So we'll read about that in verse 20. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far uh, who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. So this is probably months after the original day that as they think back, they're like, we should celebrate that every year, this deliverance that we've had from our enemies. So verse 22, as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month, month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written them. Because Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against 
the Jews to annihilate them, and had cast Pur, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So this first letter goes out uh, from Mordecai. I have Esther on there, but this one is from Mordecai. And it's kind of pointed out there that you know, they've had this deliverance, but again, there's no credit given to God within it. And then it's pointed out what the name will be, um, Per, because that's what Lot did. He cast the Lot. And then when you get down to the bottom there, uh, in verse 25, it, it talks about the wicked plot that Haman devised against the Jews, which was turned on his own head, and his sons and him were hanged on the gallows. So this is kind of the official Persian uh, denunciation of Haman and anti-Semitism, of saying, you know, the Persian government is pro-Jewish people, and we kind of made a mistake, but it was Haman's fault. <laughs> Mistakes were made by Haman. So, uh, so in verse 26, So they called these days Purim after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail they would celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time, that these days should be uh, remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Uh, so, yeah, they really want it to be remembered. Um, by the people of Israel, and they still celebrate it today. They still have the days of Purim, and it's kind of been, my, my reading of it is, it's kind of been stretched to three days. Um, I don't fully understand all this happened, but in between, uh, so during some of that silent period where there's nothing from scripture written before Christ came, there was what was called like the Maccabean Wars, and Maccabeus, uh, Judas Maccabeus, won a battle on a day close to this. So they kind of like tacked it on as like another deliverance. So that's part of it too now is that Maccabean victory. So I don't know the full details on that, but it'd be fun to look into. And so I think the way they celebrate it now is they kind of take that theme of mourning to joy. So on the first day of their celebration, they fast, and then the next two days, they give gifts and drink a lot and celebrate. So one commentator said that the, the way they talk about it casually today is that you drink until you can't tell the difference between blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman, uh, that you're so drunk that... so. I don't know. I don't know if they all do that or if that's just a joke. But uh, So in verse 29, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, 
to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim and at their appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. So that's probably the Persian law book because that's who they were functioning under at that time. And then we have a really short chapter 10, which is kind of fascinating. It's only three verses. Uh, so we're going to see here that Mordecai sought the good of his people and Haman's position of second in the kingdom. So one last time it's pointed out that uh, Haman, or, uh, Mordecai has been exalted uh, to this position. So, chapter 10, verse 1. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. So we end the book there with the, the Jewish people getting along well with the, the king there. And the scary thing about a monarch is it's just one guy that kind of controls the whole political climate. So as soon as that one guy who you're in favor with is gone, you have another guy to work with. Um, so uh, Ahasuerus died about eight years later. He was assassinated. Um, and so we don't know what happened to uh, Esther and Mordecai after this. Um, but that's kind of how that story ends. And Mordecai was in a position of authority to help, and so was Esther uh, for quite a few years after that. So that's the end of the book. Does anyone have um, any thoughts as we've worked through the whole book now or what we studied tonight? Questions that they thought of? How, much, how long was it till the king died? Eight or ten years, did you say? Eight years is my understanding, yeah. So. I got one question. Back in eight, and you, yeah, I think you might have covered it already, but mm -hmm. it's 817, right at the end of the verse, it says that many of the people's became Jews. That, you said that that just means that they said, hey, we're on your side. That didn't, didn't mean anything like uh, we're becoming uh, like a proselyte yeah. type thing or a yeah. conversion. Yeah, it doesn't specifically say. I, I'm kind of assuming that because they're just doing it because they're afraid of the Jews that it's maybe they're probably what it was is like the Persian and other uh, places were more polytheistic. So it could have been just a, yeah, we'll bring in some of the Jewish customs and your God Yahweh, and then we don't have to die. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, Stacy. I have the CSB in my versions. Yeah. It says, um, many ethnic groups of the land profess themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. Okay. So yeah, it, it could have just been a, like, yeah, don't. Attack us, we're on your side, or we're, we're Jewish. Good. Yeah, Sheila. What is Persia today? 
Yeah. So the Persian uh, government at this time, they had most of what we would think of as um, like the Middle East, stretching all the way into Europe and India and just a lot. Like, I don't know, I should pull up a map. Anybody have a map in their Bible? I just was curious <laughs> if it had anything to do with the current war, the yeah. countries or anything. Right, so it's, uh, it would have, the government was surrounding Israel. So Israel was inside of that. So if you think about where Israel's at, so it's, it's similar to what keeps happening where people hate the Jews. Uh, and yeah, part of it is theological. Um, I don't know, if we, we don't really have time to, to delve into all that, but even going back to how God chose Jacob and hated Esau. Uh, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, to where God chose Israel and it's like ingrained in countries and nationalities that they hate each other. Um, and it's just, that's been the story of history since that time. So, <laughs> where, and people just tend to not get along well. Um, we, we just have a lot of, uh, a very different mindset today in America of we want peace, but other cultures want land, they want the glory of war, uh, they want to destroy their enemies. We just think differently than them today in lots of those respects. Hmm. And you know, like we get like holding a grudge against somebody or wanting revenge. So they have that going back thousands of years. So we should so. call that cultural? Um, I think it's become cultural, but I think there's aspects that uh, it's the way things have unfolded in this incursed world. Um, just people fighting each other and things like that. So. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Dorothy. I have a question. About, yeah. Um, in chapter 9, verse 10, it almost sounds like the Jews killed Haman's sons. Mm -hmm. And then later on in chapter 13 and 14, yep. it says they were hanged. Um, Pastor asked that they be hanged and the king commanded this to be done. Right. So, yeah. is, is this, is in verse 10, it says that they... In Shushan, the Yeah, it was probably different from like what we think about uh, with like a noose from a gallows. It was probably more like a stake that they put people on. So I think in this case, they had killed them in battle and then they were kind of putting them on display to say, we, we clearly have the upper hand, stop fighting, and let the day end, 
and then the war will be over. <laughs> and it's, uh, it doesn't seem peaceful, but I think you can read it in a way that it says, um, like, you'll be killed if you come, if you come fight us, so stop fighting, I think is the message. So it's an, it's, it seems gruesome to us, but it's a message to say, don't fight us anymore or you'll lose. It's a, it's a show of force to, to create peace. So you're saying that they were killed and then Esther asked that their, their hazard thing be displayed at least. Right. Okay. Yep, as a warning of this will happen to you as well if you fight against us, so just stop. I think. Wow, Esther was pretty tough, wasn't she? Yeah. Yeah, she, I think she's trying to save as many people as she can. And she had the position to do that. So. But yeah, it's as I've interacted with the story in my life, I've never thought about it in terms of like, there was a war that went on for two days. But it was a, a big deal. So, If you have more questions or thoughts or anything, let me know. Uh, here's just a few takeaway points for us. Uh, you think about how the Jews study Purim. They study their sorrow being turned to joy. Uh, we will experience that in a way better way when uh, Christ takes us to be with him. So our sorrow will be turned to joy, which no one can take away from us. That's the way John 16 talks about it. And then Revelation 21 talks about the new heaven and the new earth. And so the best is still to come for us. And so as we think about this life and our, you know, we mourn like Mordecai did. We, we weep. And we experience sorrow. And we, because we've experienced such great sorrow, how much greater will that joy be? You know, you think about like the magnitude of the more you know sorrow, the better joy will be uh, when we are with Jesus. So the Jews, you know, experience that in a war sense, uh, but we'll experience it forever with Christ um, in his presence. <clears throat> Uh, nothing is random. I think this is one of the main themes of the book of Esther is all the seemingly random events of, you know, uh, Vashti saying, no, I'm not going to come. And then Esther becomes queen. And then, you know, all that stuff that happens in between there. And even in them pointing out the lot uh, that we're going to celebrate this because uh, Haman cast the lot. And so we know from Proverbs 16 that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So things aren't random in our lives. You know, you think about the king having a bad night of sleep. How many times have we had a bad night of sleep and been like mad about it? <laughs> when we could have been thinking, you know, God isn't doing this randomly. There's nothing meaningless in God's plan. God's doing something here. You know, help me to listen to you and follow your spirit, Lord, um, in this. So, yeah, that's a fun thought to keep in the back of our mind with interruptions and delays and uncomfortable and suffering and all these things that uh, none of it's random. God is doing his work. And then, yeah, we see the Jews come to peace here at the end, but even with what's going on, Right now, we know that this was a temporary peace for the people of Israel. 
and that only Jesus can bring true eternal peace to anybody. And so Zechariah 9.10 is fun because it's, uh, it's right before this is when it's written. Um, and it just talks about how Jesus speaks peace to the nations, that he, he is the one who will make peace and uh, it will last forever. No one will be able to overcome him. Uh, and then, yeah, lastly, you know, we have the heroes of our book, Esther. Mordecai and Esther are definitely the hero and heroine of the story. And uh, they died. And that was it. Like, they're gone. And just to keep our minds focused on if we hope in a leader, if we hope in, you know, a person or even ourselves, uh, it's, it's a misplaced hope. It's a failed hope. It won't work out. We have to hope in the Lord because he's the only one uh, that will stay true to his promises and his perfect character. And we have to trust and hope in him. So those are kind of my two uh, main takeaways from the book is that nothing's random and to hope in the Lord, not in people or yourself. I think we see those two things come up a lot in the book. Um, through the lives of our characters. Uh, I'll close our time in prayer, and then uh, we can be dismissed. (laughs) Sorry, that was, it was three chapters. I know one of the chapters was only three verses, but it was three chapters. So, sorry for going late. Aaron, don't go late next week. It'll be great. Yeah. Perfect. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for who you are and that you are a God who never fails. You are a God who never lets us down. You always keep your promises and you're always true to your character. And we know that you're always watching and working and that we can trust uh, the random events that seem to go on around us, uh, that you are in charge of those things and that we can walk by faith in you. Help us not to hope in a person or to hope in ourselves. Uh, but to hope in Jesus who died for our sins and rose again and that we would look forward to that future hope of being with him where our sorrows turn to joy and we experience everlasting peace um, in your kingdom. And we just ask that you would uh, help us as we go away and uh, that we would trust you uh, even tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.